Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Disclaimer. Horror Hill is a horror anthology podcast bringing you scary stories from all corners of the internet and beyond. As such, certain stories include content that some listeners might find offensive. In particular, one of tonight's stories includes content related to pregnancy and miscarriage. Listener discretion is advised. Well, hello there, folks. I'm Eric Peabody, and you're tuned in to the Horror Hill Podcast. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this episode is airing right before Christmas, and we here at Horror Hill have decided to celebrate in our own special little way this year. Instead of focusing on the tropes of the season, like Santa, snowstorms, and presents, we've decided to focus on the true spirit of the holiday, family and friends. However, since this is a horror story podcast, we're going to be providing a slightly different take on things than your average sitcom holiday special would. In fact, tonight we have two stories for you from one of the more uh, doer authors that gets featured on this show, J.R. Hamantaschen. 
JR has consistently impressed me with his gloominess, subtlety, insight into human psychology, and the overall depressing worldview that comes through in his stories. Who better to provide us with some holiday delight? I don't care how warm the fire in your hearth is, listeners. These two stories will bring a chill into your holiday home. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to help support Horror Hill and also remove these pesky ads, head to ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. You'll get instant access to hundreds of ad-free stories, and we can scale back some of our uh, less savory means of generating money for the show. By the way, you wouldn't happen to still have all of your organs, would you? And now, from author J.R. Hamantaschen, I give you... May as well blame it on the heat. When it comes to understanding why people do what they do, not enough credit is given to boredom, either being hopelessly mired in it or making a desperate pivot to escape it. And the power of heat, too, although that just may hasten the speed of descent. Once the decision has been made and you find your thoughts sweating out of you, it's much easier to stay the course than reconsider where you're headed. So it was, boredom as the initiating agent, that drenching summer as the sealing agent, that led Sunil and Nakia, both within calendar-flipping distance of 40, to try to have a child, because the prospects of mid-life and beyond stretched out before them, and both had qualms about what they saw. It was Sunil who vocalized the fear, Sunil the one more affected by the loss of their friends who'd decamped to the suburbs, more stung with jealousy by the friends who'd authored themselves a new direction in life. Jealous was a strange word to use because it was a short-lived, avoidable jealousy, more some cousin of jealousy left undefined on the family tree. One similarity that made Nakia and him so compatible was their mutually held belief in the benefits of childlessness, but recently he could dimly see the diminishing returns ever encroaching, and as life stretched onward, what would he have to show for it? And those were the conscious thoughts he wrestled with, that flared up when he was careless where he looked on social media and allowed himself to be hurt by others' purported happiness. But it didn't have to be like that, he knew. As he'd gotten older, he'd moved far enough away from the defeatist prism he'd thought himself consigned. The stings and humiliations of adolescence that so imprinted themselves on his formative personality had, if not healed over time, lost the power of narrative. The conclusion that he'd been an unhappy child still remained but it was now work to conjure the names and faces and circumstances, the premises for his conclusion. That his father had been a commandeering alcoholic, that word, of course, never uttered within his family, his mother a craven, self-absorbed avoider, that he had always felt like a burden. That dynamic that had so set him against having a family of his own now felt like the vicarious traumas of a half-remembered movie. And Nakia... Her resistance to having a child had always been less emotional and more primal. 
she'd had a happy family life, or a reasonable enough facsimile of one. Three siblings, all with children of their own, which had taken the pressure off of her. For her, it was the fear of physical transformation, of subordinating her own body to a process she could not control, to those thousands of little experiences one could be warned about but never prepared for, the real education being in the process itself, at which point it was already too late. It was a boring, languorous, sweltering summer. Sunil had always worked remotely, and Nakia's job had just recently announced they were making the same transition. So they stayed at home together, each with their own high-velocity blower fan directed at their workstations to keep them cool. It was late spring when Sunil had brought up the idea, which was itself an accomplishment, as he was one to keep emotions close to the chest. Were it a few years earlier, he very well may have kept it all to himself even though he knew nature had its own schedule. He knew he couldn't live with himself if he never gave his concern a voice. Imagine an alternative future with their lovely son, Sunil's own face looking back at him, and now blink and it disappeared, the image broken up and swirling away like dust motes caught in the arc of their high-velocity blower, all because he'd said nothing. It was as if the future life of his unborn son impelled him, through time and space, to advocate for his creation. And Nakia, as she aged, strangely became less fearful of the expected physical changes. Counterintuitively, transfiguration might be more threatening for those most handy enough to withstand it, the young, buoyant, and hopeful. She'd already changed physically, and pregnancy wouldn't kill her dreams or result in so drastic a sacrifice as her younger self had feared, because those dreams were fulfilled, to live in the city with someone she loved. And by being fulfilled, they died, just as a journey ends once the destination is reached. And, as she was fond of saying to herself as of late when thinking about her oldest sister's quixotic attempt to start her own business... Dreams end when you wake up. Nakia had favorably reconciled herself to the reality that there was no impending, vague but fragile greatness that required her constant vigilance to avoid being mistakenly sacrificed. This was it, and it wasn't bad, and she'd experienced unwanted and unpleasant physical transformations already. To her always waking up tired, to the spreading around her waist and the indefatigable flabby flabbiness under her arms, and the gulf between the physical burdens of pregnancy and whatever unburdened physicality she'd once sought to protect had sufficiently dwindled. And the heat, too. It was as if the heat seared out her concerns. Those residual fears turned to steam heat that just wafted out her brain up out into the ether. So, they agreed to try. Well, not doing anything overt to try, other than staying aware of her expected fertility cycles and not using prophylactics. Sunil knew they were older and it could be difficult and a specialist might be needed, but, already so quick to disappointment, he did not want to seek one out, as if to conceal from himself how much he wanted this to be successful. They would, as quietly gloating successful couples say after having had conceived, let nature take its course. 
and by midsummer, less than three weeks after they broached the issue and about a month after Nikia suspected, based on her bloating feet and heightened sense of smell, a pregnancy test officially confirmed it. Heeding Nakia's call to come into the bathroom, Sunil stood there, strangely muted, as if the competing emotions couldn't overcome the inviting torpor of the noonday heat. So this was it, the gun in the air signaling the start of the race. He studied himself for clues as to how he was feeling. Okay, he felt okay, although he had the fierce desire to double-check their finances this wasn't the Bush Leagues anymore. For Nakia, the straight line on the test indicating pregnant was a homing beacon to those fears she thought she'd banished, that she discovered had only insidiously obscured themselves, all now re-emerging victorious, all the stronger for their dormancy. That straight line was runic code for, we got you now. No, those were just unnatural negative thoughts from young Nakia, screaming her last and seeking revenge. Young Nakia, impetuous Nakia, non-committal Nakia. She remembered who she was, that she wanted this, had agreed to it, and soon, like water smoothing over a sandcastle, the sharp edges of panic washed away. She kissed Sunil on his cheek, which seemed more appropriate, something more befitting accomplishment than a passionate lip-locking, and then they hugged, which felt most appropriate of all. Here they were, a few weeks more into the pregnancy, with a date set for the first consultation with the OBGYN and the requisite books on both their Kindles, more reassuring physical copies for reference on the nightstand. Nakia found herself curiously uninterested in sex, maybe a side effect of the biological point of sex having been realized. She was especially relieved to be pregnant because her interest in sex had been waning, had already assumed a passionless, functionalist approach before they'd even decided to try and conceive. Nothing having to do with their love fading, nothing having much to do with anything really. Maybe just fatigue, work stress, and both of them having grown more fully into their fairly reserved personalities. Instead, she thought, inwardly smiling, being fated over and catered to these next months could have its advantages. Sunil had already begun cooking all the meals, perhaps as practice for when she was unable to. But when would that be? The last few weeks before delivery? She wasn't complaining. The stress, strangely, had been lifted. The part they could really control was over. They'd docked themselves on the boat called Biology and were now following it downstream. Though it came in waves, there was intermittently that grip of almost mania, what it must feel like to realize the brakes have stopped working and the bridge has gone out. And then Nikia chided herself, because that's an absurd thought. Everything was fine. It should mean something that her go-to reference was so outlandish. It should be evidence for the baselessness of her pointless worrying. How are you feeling? Sunil asked at bedtime, patting her stomach even though there was, of course, nothing yet to feel. I feel good, Nakia thought to herself as if to verify the statement. I feel good. Great. Do you like the prenatals? 
Should we ask the doctor about what's the best brand, or do you think it's okay? If it were the former, then it would need to be added to the list on the table, and neither of them wanted to get up, but the alternative would be each struggling to remember to add it to the list for tomorrow. I'm sure it's fine. I've been taking them for a while. I'm sure it's fine, and it'll come up when we talk about what to eat. She'd already stopped drinking alcohol and eating dessert, the first of a series of sacrifices. For Sunil, she knew, proactivity was its own point, his hedge against the turtling avoidance he'd either inherited from his mother or came to on his own when life's demands proved too overwhelming. Apartments.com has more pet-friendly rental listings than anywhere else. So, finding the perfect place is easier than ever, and so is finally moving in together. Just the two of you. It's a big step. Lots of new responsibilities. Lots of adjustments. Most likely, they'll wake you up at odd hours to go to the bathroom, and you'll most definitely find yourself in trouble coming home late for dinner. They might even unroll all your toilet paper next time. It's just what happens when you two find a new place together, but you're not doing it because you feel like it. No, you're doing it because you love them, because they're family. And that's why Apartments.com has the most pet-friendly rental listings on the internet so that you and your furry family can find the perfect new place together. Apartments.com, the place to find a pet-friendly place. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Sometimes Sunil couldn't sleep and claimed to wake up often in the middle of the night, although he'd never been awake when Nakia woke up throughout the night and early morning, as she habitually did for seemingly no reason. She was too afraid of sleep medicines. It seemed every overdose story involved a sleep medicine, and a sleep study had been on her ever-expanding list of things to eventually do for her own benefit, that list now shunted aside. Just the beginning. Why, why did she wake up so often? There was never some discreet pedestrian worry that crept into a dream, never some character running late with an assignment that forced her to make worrying connections. She was asleep now, she knew, and her dream self, if she could visualize it, would have a pinched face of concern. Nakia lay in silent anticipation, knowing, just knowing, that being aware that she was dreaming would break whatever illusion was needed to sustain the dream. Already, the environment of the dream was blank, a non-entity, as if chased away by her own presence. 
but she was still asleep, so hold tight, ride out this meta-dream wave, let something pop up and keep her here. Her dream self sensed rushing gas seeping in around her. She remembered the air conditioner was on full blast and two fans were running, so she knew that sound was just circulating air piping its way into the dream. Instead, turn that sound into cooking gas, us making dinner. What would we eat? The dream, that recalcitrant, unknowable beast, stomped away from the story prompts Nakia offered. Let the air glide over her, Sunil's body against hers, hand curled around her hip, the air neutralizing the body heat, whisking away sweat, allowing them to embrace. Body pressure, connection, relax into the dream, the moment, a hot bath. Hot baths aren't allowed anymore, she thought, layers beneath the dream and the fabric of the dream, stead and indistinct rippled and wavered. Nakia knew she was still asleep, hold on to that. Sunil's body, curiously wet, slickened with sweat, up against her stomach. His hand, it must be, but it moved, grooved almost, with deliberate purpose. Not his hand, his lips, a sex dream. She arched back, she hadn't had one of these in... Sunil eating her out. No hot baths allowed except tongue baths, wink wink. Dream self hoped she tasted clean, felt strange about doing this while pregnant. But no, it wasn't oral sex. Too high up. The dream became Sunil and her laughing about him not knowing what he was doing. It would be nice if he wasn't always so sensitive and could take constructive criticism and her dream became her own face laughing about it. Sunil wasn't near her, she somehow knew. He was curled off on the other side of the bed, and even in testing this theory, her dream took a fierce turn. She grew groping tentacles, desperately probing to find Sunil, locate him across the deep, unforbidden ocean of their shared bed. Not Sunil and a fire alarm of confusion popped the bubble of sleep. Nakia waded through the fog into consciousness, propelled by the way one understands, so briefly, the importance of a dream in those brief moments of first awakening. The room was dark and deep enough for her to know it was that dead period of early morning, but their curtains were threadbare, and lights from the street always stubbornly found their way in so she could make out what she saw. She couldn't move. She was so immobilized that her own consciousness in her head, that external watcher, that voice yelling at the screen that was one's internal monologue, was silenced. It was as if all the moisture, all thoughts, all the life had been suctioned out of her body, and she lay helplessly on her back, a husk. The room was suffocatingly hot, the only blanket atop her a blanket of heat. A humanoid face at her midsection. Whether it truly had this ghastly bluish-white pallor or it was a trick of the early morning dark, she'd never know. She could only see the upper half of its head, vaguely and inconsistently, multiple swaying limbs obscuring her view. No, not limbs. 
too wispy and chiffon-like to be limbs, and limbs didn't protrude that high up. Less limbs and more like the protective canopy of some stunted tree or a contained viscous mist. She couldn't see what stretched out beyond and must lay slinking and sliding down the end of the bed and onto the bedroom floor. Some impulse and her leg fidgeted. She intuited Sunil beside her, asleep, and that juxtaposition of him by her side while this was happening to her brought her some fresh new depth of abandonment, desperation, and somehow humiliation. When she finally breathed, her dehydration was frighteningly obvious in her lightheadedness, more fluid in her sticky sweat than in her body. The head turned toward her, and there was a pinch, a tug, when the face detached from whatever it was doing. The external watcher in her mind returned, instructing her by showing her in her mind's eye what to do. Push the face away. Wake up Sunil. Run. Nakia lifted her leg to kick, and then stopped and screamed when she saw the face more clearly. Time stopped. The face was twitching desperately, protruding eyes doing something like pleading, that absurd swaying canopy retracting intelligibly as if to give her a full, unadulterated view of what lay before her. In several places, its skin popped, but symmetrically, like a controlled demolition, from each side of its eyes down to its chin, and little nubs emerged, extended further out, and she could only think of corn pops, fetid corn pops, and they were emerging further. The face became less pleading. There was confidence verging on the triumphant. The nubs were extending, and she knew, somehow knew, that what would eventually emerge would be vice-like and crushing, a bear trap reaching outward. She let out a flurry of bicycle kicks, screamed, smacked the air and herself, and shook Sunil simultaneously, as if a flurry of roaches had just descended upon them. Just before she closed her eyes, she saw the shape disappear, sensed more than heard its added weight on the floor, shifting and sliding away toward the bedroom door. Nakia? Nakia, what's the matter? What's the matter? Sunil steadied her with his body. She pushed him off herself aggressively. How fucking dare he assume this pose to calm his hysterical wife, seconds ago sleeping in his ignorance while she was being violated in their bed? How fucking dare he? Calm down, calm down! And his pressure became firmer. There's someone in the house... Nakia could tell, by the way Sunil looked less alarmed than annoyed, that he didn't believe her, but was doing his dutiful best to quell his irritation and get up. He bounded up and turned on the lights. Nothing there. The fans were still on, but the AC was off, he noted, although that sometimes happened, some annoying fucking energy-saving function that they always thought they turned off. Sunil disappeared out into the living room. Her anger melted into regret. No, she wanted to reach out to him. Don't go! Don't go! What had she sent him out to confront? She lay sweating in bed, paralyzed as to what she should do. Please come back. Please come back. 
How long must she wait before going out there? She poked at her gut, the area below her belly button where she'd felt the tug. The lights were dim in the bedroom, but she couldn't see anything, didn't feel anything different. Sunil came back with a big mug. There's no one here. The doors and windows are all fine. Everything looks normal. Here, sit up and have some water. Thanks. Nakia sat up at the edge of the bed, cupped the mug with both hands. My stomach hurts. Can you take a look? Okay. And he did so. At first he was frustrated, but then remembered the context and was evidently relieved that he found nothing. It looks fine. What does it feel like? Is it like a stabbing kind of feeling, or maybe just gas? Is it getting better or worse? She detected a shift in his concern, a shaky nervousness, almost a ready willingness to comply with instructions. Now he cared. Something with the pregnancy, and now he cares. It feels fine. She was a bit upset at the admission, but not in the mood to pretend otherwise. It doesn't hurt anymore, she said with finality, guilty about how she'd just felt. Do you think you had a nightmare? Why, why did you think there was someone here? And what could she possibly say other than dismissible lunacy interpreted as an extreme waking night terror? Provide him fodder for psychological speculation about the upcoming pregnancy. And what could she say in response to all that because that was the most realistic explanation? Although she'd never in her whole life had any dream or vision or whatever anyone could call it that was anything as vivid and bizarre. Which was worse, for that to have been real or for her to be so disconnected from reality that she could conjure up her own living hellscape? No, best to do what needed to be done convince herself, in time, that she was overreacting, and it was truly nothing but a hallucination. No, that was too scary, a hallucination. Crazy people had hallucinations. Conclude it was some kind of nightmare? Stick with that? Some nightmare, and she'd been dreaming the whole time. Even though she knew she'd been awake. She knew she'd been awake. She knew... Sunil wanted to see the OBGYN immediately. Nakia wouldn't act so withdrawn and sullen then. She'd have to put on her professional face. Then they could tell the doctor this story. Nakia would start out a bit quiet, embarrassed perhaps, but glad to air out her troubles. But the doctor would tell them something about nightmares being common, especially among older couples having their first child. Or something authoritative, something like, I've heard this a million times. But even Sunil knew that would be a bit much, not realistic. Instead, Sunil imagined the doctor saying something like, Not as uncommon as you'd think. Sunil had googled about sleep paralysis, but restrained from sending her any links, accurately sensing that broaching the subject would be unjustly interpreted as interfering somehow, and only serve to get her riled up again. But Sunil needed her peevish mobiness to end. Not just for her, of course, but it couldn't be good for the baby, for her to be so down and so weirdly antagonistic toward him, as if somehow this was his fault. It crushed him to think of his son in there, 
assuming a son made him feel better, forming in the current of this pumping hatred that now possessed her. And he was a person too, with feelings, and those didn't just end upon her pregnancy. Her withdrawal of affections hobbled him, consumed him, drained the meaning of every quotidian thing he did throughout the day. What was the point of work, of doing anything, when his wife apparently hated him? It would, and, he told himself, just be patient and caring, as all fights resolved, although at least every other fight had an understandable beginning. Come to think of it, they very rarely fought, both knowing the high drama of confrontation over some dumb thing was never worth the cost. In their prior worldview, it was always them, the good, caring people, against the vast, uncaring world with whatever challenges represented the world always changing. Usually work obligations or just the general mass of inconsiderate others. Could this situation even be called a fight if one side didn't even know if they were in a fight? Nakia had googled sleep paralysis too, scanned through the same materials Sunil had, some tiny commonality of shared experience that would go unstated. She also looked up nightmares experienced by pregnant women, but really, what was the point? Because whether she found anything that confirmed or denied her experience wouldn't make it any better. And shit, which was worse? Assume she was the first person on planet Earth to Google a medical worry and come away with a wholly satisfying resolution? What then? Business as usual? Continue going on until the next heart attack? Nakia didn't intellectually believe what she'd seen was real, or, more likely, wasn't feeling equipped to grapple with that question. The paralysis she'd experienced carried over to waking life. Assuming, of course, it was just some crazed dream, of course, of course, what was to come? What dreams awaited her further into her pregnancy? What had she signed up for? And to the extent that she would never stop worrying about her child, had she, in a sense, signed the direction of her life away, consigned to this overarching worry. And she still had the pregnancy to go forward with, all these changes and complications to her body, watching everything she ate and drank, and crossed her fingers and hoped this wasn't the time either of their jobs downsized, or who knows what else people such as them must worry about while the rest of the idiots blithely went about their business as things always just clicked into place for them. It was the sensitive who suffered the most acutely. It was like she had signed a contract, only to now realize she hadn't considered the dizzying, dense array of fine print. Now, into the pregnancy, it was as if some undergirding thesis that secretly supported her worldview had articulated itself to her. She was distrustful of life, conscious of its burdens and unmoved by its supposed satisfactions, and had always compromised by keeping a safe distance, one foot always back onto the ledge. Leaping into an embrace of life, agreeing to perpetuate it and take on all its responsibilities and anxieties was not for her, and only now was that fact coming into relief, relief sharp enough to slice. This was a lot to take while trying to eat breakfast, her husband stealing glances at her. Nakia wasn't able to give him the reciprocating glances of affection that he desired. Why work? Why eat? Why do anything? 
to continue this process of change within her. It was as if some hole had been punctured into the ceiling of her life. The water had leaked in and the sanctuary was soaked. The hole could be fixed, sure. Time could do that. Time, logic, mindfulness, whatever it is that could do that. But the contaminating water would stay, the rot setting in. Sunil and Nikio would have to navigate their domain with everything soaked and ruined, pretend everything was fine and normal as disease-causing life forms flourished and multiplied and the watery filth rose up above their knees. And at some point, Sunil would yell at her to stop complaining. What was the matter? Why was she like this? And she'd look down at that swirling muck and all that grew within it, and that precipitating incident would have been so long ago that it had been like this water had always been there. Calm down. Calm down, Nikia. But she was shaking. Something had gone wrong that night. The bell couldn't be unrung, and she was terrified. Afflicted by the stupefaction the rabbit in the open field must feel when it detects the descending shadow of a hawk. Nakia had never felt this way before, so totally in thrall, consumed by this unshakable knowledge of being irretrievably doomed. But if she was being honest, during some earlier times in her life she'd heard doom taking deep sighs outside the door, and things must have been too okay for too long because she'd forgotten that this condition had never left, and she'd forgotten who she was the person who remained cautious and afraid, and had taken this big leap and forgot all about Doom remaining perched just outside her door, just ready for her to do something foolhardy. And she had, and Doom was here. But Sunil had told her that the windows had been closed, that there had been no sign of forced entry, and everything had looked fine, and she knew that was true. Everything looked the way it normally had. But he hadn't mentioned that the kitchen window had been opened halfway. They usually left it half-opened when they cooked, and there wasn't a screen. Nakia didn't say anything to him, because what would be the point? But she made a show of forcing the window shut. Sunil was half up out of his chair when he realized what she was doing, as those physical acts were his duty and Nakia was pregnant, but the deed was done with a thud and Nakia stormed into the bedroom, grunting about needing to take a work call, although Sunil listened and didn't hear anything. About the time he decided to go and see how she was doing, she came out, keeping alive this apparently new tradition of seeming despondent and lost until the moment he tried to say anything, at which point she'd become irritable and impatient. The only relief seemed to come that night, when she clutched him in bed, and he was able to tell her that everything would be fine, everything would be fine, and he took her tightened silence as a kind of acceptance. The following day, and Sunil still had to tread carefully. Every action felt freighted. He wasn't sure what she was working on, but whenever he looked, he was sure she wasn't working. She was either clicking away with an intensity too feverish to be work, or staring too listlessly and vacantly to be getting anything done. He wondered what it was that so consumed her. He had suggested she take a couple of days off, and that had been shot down 
although to what end he didn't know. Enough was enough. Hey, honey. Sunil cornered her on the couch as she ate yogurt. Nakia looked as abject as ever, fixated on her yogurt as if it would bring some reprieve, and something about both the absurdity and tragedy before him compelled him to put an end to whatever this was. What's going on? He knew, obviously, but didn't know what else to say. He just wanted something to say, something that could ease into something else. He expected some flurry of impotent score-settling, but as if she recognized the futility of that approach, or caught herself in the remorse of how she was acting, or just needed to do something to escape from the clutches of this depression, her resolve broke, and all she said was, There's a mark on my stomach. And then, with a frustrated flourish, tossed the yogurty spoon onto the paper towel on the coffee table. Let me see, Sunil said, gingerly exploring the area as if he had any useful training in the field. Be careful, she implored, fighting the urge to become hysterical. He waited to say the following until he was absolutely sure. I don't see anything. Her skin was dark brown, and red marks or blemishes didn't show as easily as they did on Sunil's lighter brown skin. It's right above the belly button. It feels sensitive to the touch, too. Not like any sharp pain or anything, but I can feel it. This jolted Sunil, as this was something involving the baby, that entity now atop the hierarchy of needs. Sunil was intensely nostalgic for those halcyon moments when this was just some stupid spat that would dissipate as all of them always did. Now it affected the baby and his stomach turmoiled with the nausea and anxiety of being on the precipice of some important decision, knowing there would be severe consequences, but not being sure of what to do. Nakia sensed this shift in priorities, and the doom she carried with her reasserted itself. With that shift came a realization, as if sprawled, overlooked facts came out from hiding and made their import known. The thing she saw... Humanoid, but still so outrageous, that shroud on its face, as if designed not to be fully seen. Imagine some species targeting newly pregnant women, a species that had developed traits that would give it the appearance of some kind of blurry insanity, roughly approximating the shadow people seen by sufferers of sleep paralysis. A happenstance that would so easily lead to the conclusion of a nightmare or a delusion, explained away as happening to someone overly emotional, worried, and sensitive. And her, especially. Her fear, resentment, and second doubts radiated out of her, a curly cue of scent that lifted its fingers into that thing's nose and carried it through their opened window. This final X on the map might be wrong, but she was groping in the right territory, she felt. And once this course was charted, the belief was set and not bound to be dislodged. No one would believe her. No one could believe her. There was nothing any doctor could do. Go to the doctor, let him take his sonogram, and what would she really expect? Some apparent deformity? Of course not. These things wouldn't allow that. They wouldn't have survived for so long if their handiwork could be so easily detected. 
No. It would be several more months of agonizing. An impossibility. Just impossible to foresee sitting idly by these months, knowing this project was cursed before it began in earnest. Having to go through the motions of work, the charade of planned maternity leave, the nodding and yes doctors, and plaintive fake smiles Sunil would require when he told her she needed to get her folic acid and avoid XYZ for what she knew was a sprouting abomination. Would it reveal itself just after birth? The same ghastly bluish-white pallor and crisscrossing waving growths? Or would it be even more insidious? Give her the curse of a lifetime of quiet observation and suspicion, waiting for the truth to be revealed until its mysterious development cycle made itself known? Or would it just be plain, simple, and tragic? A stillbirth with the same tiny mark she bore that apparently only she could see, and then she'd cry and cry about what she could have or should have done differently. Sunil had been on his best behavior. He truly had been. Patient, as patient as he could be. Accommodating, as accommodating as he could be. And he'd done well, never once raised his voice, did his best to lessen the sting of his impatience, sublimate the hurt pride caused by her dismissal and disrespect. Like he was a lodger in their lives, not even an equal member. Why wouldn't she explain? Yes, the dream, he knew, the nightmare. How many more times could he console her? How many more times could he suggest a doctor or a psychiatrist or time off work or a getaway or a visit to one of her sisters or... What? What else was there except at some point you must come to terms with reality? It was when she suggested, without words, just from the shaking of her head, that she didn't want to be a mother... Sunil had felt, intimately felt, the internal wiring that connected his throat to his stomach, and his insides almost lurched out of him. To deter her from this train of thought she was riding along, he diverted, compromised by calling the OBGYN's office and requesting an urgent appointment with Dr. Severa, explaining that his wife was highly worried about her pregnancy and wanted to come in as soon as possible to make sure everything was all right. But for what? As the next day, the searing cramping began, and the doctor confirmed with a sonogram the beginning of the miscarriage. These things happened, Dr. Severa told them, with surprisingly less grace than Sunil would have expected. Perhaps that rougher, it-is-what-it-is treatment was some psychological doctor trick for the benefit of aggrieved couples, so they didn't think the world had uniquely turned its back on them in their moment of triumph. Dr. Severa assured them that he and his wife had had two miscarriages and now had two happy, healthy children of their own, and in time, once this miscarriage passed, they could be right back to trying. He was cursed, Sunil thought, and that was the wrong, unhelpful attitude to have, he knew, but wasn't he entitled to his feelings? Things never worked out for him. It was his fault, somehow, that things didn't work out, as if God or the forces of the universe checked its ledger, realized that Sunil was the source of that successful sperm, and the universe did what it needed to to remedy that oversight. That oversight that allowed Sunil to temporarily think he might just get something that he wanted. 
That was the wrong attitude, he knew, and he told himself so, but it lingered. He worked hard to bury his suspicions that Nakia had wanted this to happen, that she somehow willed this to happen. Sunil thought hotly that Nakia's family might be pleased. They were always disappointed and upset that she married an Indian and not another proud, successful black man like the rest of her siblings. They never said as much, but he felt it. The way they were cordial, but aloof, their entreaties always feeling like the mechanical bare minimum. He did his best to console Nakia, who, after hearing the news, seemed oddly and quickly reconciled to it. It was as if she forgot that she was supposed to be angry, upset, or standoffish towards Sunil, again allowing herself to be coddled and cradled. Sunil knew to bite his tongue about wanting to try again as soon as possible. Let her get through this. Let them get through this. Lick their wounds and try again. Anything but the shrinking, decaying course their lives had been on before this pregnancy. For Nakia, as much as she hated to say it, the miscarriage might be a blessing in disguise. A way to start afresh. A chance to reconsider. To not spend a pregnancy in tormented anticipation. She would demand they move, and, if they ever tried again, that itself being a big if, every night, every window would be closed shut. Nakia, despite believing firmly in the truth of something she knew sounded insane, reconciled herself to the lonely reality that no one would ever believe her. But if there was any silver lining to all of this, Nakia thought, Sunil might believe her just maybe, once he saw her now, now that this bleeding had begun. You've been listening to May As Well Blame It on the Heat by J.R. Hamantaschen. And now, also from author J.R. Hamantaschen, I present More As a Knower Than a Sufferer. The sensation of getting run over was both fundamentally unexplainable, yet, somehow, exactly like he'd imagined it to be. Joel had consciousness enough to know he was very badly hurt without understanding it as pain in the ordinary sense. The closest parallel would be when, as a child, he'd been plowed over and lost within an unexpectedly powerful wave, except this time the forward momentum never seemed to end. Even though he'd actually experienced getting crushed to death by a car, still remarkable to contemplate, if Joel ever seriously reflected upon it, all that came back were hollow, half-remembered scenes from movies, as if someone had smuggled out his memories for these ersatz imitations, and his mind, or whatever functioned as his mind these days, recognized but accepted these frauds, just too much work to investigate further. A wide, panning shot of him in dark clothes, giving chase in the night. It's that part he most remembers, because he was finally taking revenge, taking action. A closer shot, in focus, disrupted by a cutting light around the bend and abrupt, urgent honking. An extreme close-up of him looking up. The sound of the collision. And, perhaps, if for an R-rated audience... The briefest glimpse of his body upended and mangled, head about to be crushed, 
then fade to black. Fade to this. An ignominious death, one would think, but when Joel thought about it, the pathetic details became less important than the gestalt of the injustice, which reaffirmed both his essential view of the world and paradoxically made him feel better. He'd finally stood up for himself and got run over like roadkill for his troubles. Viewed in the satisfying light of confirming what he'd always felt about being essentially cursed, well, it was quite the appropriate way to go out. Hey, Joel said, standing over the man before him, who was down on his equivalent of all fours. Not hello, not hi, not how are you, but hey, authoritative and a bit imposing. The man, more of an overgrown kid, really, timidly shifted in response to his voice, both trying to make something like eye contact while looking around this perturbingly blank environment. Joel knew what questions the kid had. The kid seemed like the type too embarrassed to ask, too afraid to voice the cliches, the same questions anyone would have. Where am I? Who are you? What happened? I'm Joel. Just as Joel communicated his name, he regretted it. Too impulsive, just as he'd always been. He should have said Magnuson, something sweeping and strong. Or something like Socrates, except not as embarrassingly transparent an attempt to connote wisdom. Instead, he'd just gone with his living name. Joel reached out a hand for the kid to gain his bearings. This was all metaphor. They had no bodies, just a phantom memory of a body which inspired their spirits, their essence, or whatever they now were, to move and contort the way they did. No lungs or vocal cords with which to speak, yet communication was made. No physical way to discern their environment, yet its torpid blankness was still undeniably understood by some other means, with a crushing finality greater than could be conveyed by sight. As you might have figured out, you died. The good news is that your being, so to speak, survived. That's... Joel refused to say a blessing. Something to be hopeful about. So, what can I call you? The kid, Joel could tell, was immobilized by dual instincts. The need to brush him off and sulk alone, but also an obsequious fear of the consequences from rebuffing what passed for an authority figure. It was as if the kid was back in the storied locker room of bullying's past, as if Joel was some muscled aggressor leaning into the kid's face while threatening, So say that again! What can I call you? The kid trying to appear outwardly calm while inwardly squirming. You don't have to worry, Joel said. It's alright, I get it. It's a lot to take. It sucks that we can still feel nervous and anxious here. I noticed that. The kid finally communicated. I wonder if that means something significant, like if that was something that would be helpful to, like, uh, researchers or scientists back on Earth. It's cool to know something that others don't. It's cool also to know what it feels like to be dead. It's like what every living person has thought about and wonders about, but we get to know, you know? The kid was still obviously despondent about realizing that anxiety and depression didn't end with the physical body, 
as if mental health issues were some essence of themselves that couldn't be stripped from the equation. Vincent was my name, by the way. Nice to meet you, Vincent. How old were you? Nineteen. Joel was surprised to learn Vincent was nineteen. He sensed something younger and less developed, like a 16-17, maybe even as low as a 14-15. By 19, the kid should have been mentally freed from whatever caste system high school had placed him in. It's interesting. I could somehow tell that you were younger than me, although there's no way I've yet understood as to why that should be. No eyes, no senses, as you figured out. But still, pretty accurate impressions. It's like gut feelings without the gut. And I've always found, and even read about, how gut feelings are actually pretty accurate. Vincent stayed motionless. Joel felt a twinge of antipathy toward the unappreciative kid. He didn't need to be mentoring him like this. Thought this kid ought to be a bit more... What? Engaged? Sure, it's a head trip to wake up here, but this environment was at least different from what was expected, and difference is inherently interesting even when it represents a worsening. Joel offered an olive branch. I was 24, had just started graduate school when I died. Vincent stood up, animated by some positive insight. Joel felt proud of himself, as if his tutelage had caused this reversal in the kid's outlook. I had a friend, growing up, like a best friend, who died of leukemia when we were children, Vincent began. I suppose I could try and visit him down wherever this is. And my grandparents, Vincent said with an afterthought. On my father's side, I didn't really know them. They died when I was real young, but I could reach out to them. And pets, he said hopefully. Well, if your friend died of leukemia, he is definitely not surviving down here, if he's surviving at all. I think he ceased to be at the moment of his death. And your grandparents, I assume they died of something like natural causes, and they would, by being grandparents, naturally be pretty old and weak and everything. So I'm sorry to tell you, but they aren't going to be here either. This isn't like the afterlife as you might have expected it. Oh. Vincent looked around, and Joel could tell that Vincent might be becoming reacquainted with that other grave affliction that he'd hoped would have ceased upon death, that of boredom. So, are there any other people down here with us? What do we do? That's the good news, at least. There's a lot to do. But before I tell you, tell me, how did you die? Joel was unexpectedly enjoying his time as a mentor. While alive, he had always assumed people enjoyed mentoring or teaching for purely predictable, self-interested reasons, but there was a psychological distinction in becoming a teacher that he hadn't anticipated. Assuming this mantle of teacher made him almost a different person, and it was not self-interest, but rather a satisfying obligation to rise to the occasion of his title. While all the little verbal and bodily tics to demonstrate openness and camaraderie were lost without the benefit of a body, Joel did his best. Don't be shy, man. Nothing to be ashamed of. We're all dead down here, after all, and came down here only in so many different ways. It worked. Vincent's protective walls shimmered out of existence for just moment enough for him to reveal, I killed myself and, in the grips of his second-hand embarrassment, added, So fucking stupid, I guess. 
I can't believe it. I overdosed on sleeping pills and alcohol. I always told myself that before I'd kill myself, I'd take every drug I was always scared to try. Who knows, maybe acid or mushrooms or something would have reworked my brain chemistry and I'd have lost the urge to kill myself altogether. Who knows? Pathetic that even while planning to kill myself, I never did the things I wanted to. I guess I made the decision pretty suddenly. A suicide? If Joel had had a body, his heart might be skipping a beat. He'd not yet met a suicide. Why'd you do it? The question propelled as if by some accelerant, before Vincent had time to return to post-mope equipoise. That's a long story. I don't know. Who knows? All we have is time, right? I don't know. I was unhappy, I guess. I mean, come on, obviously. I don't know how many happy suicides there are. I just mean, I don't know. I was always unhappy. Stressed, sick with anxiety about nothing and every small thing. The future in general, I suppose, and without much of a present to rely on. I was bullied, scrawny, always kind of sickly. I don't know why, but always sick. Joel waited with a pregnant pause. The bullying, though, is what did it, right? Yes, it had been, and Joel knew it without needing Vincent's confirmation. Being sickly and scrawny and generally anxious? Well, that was tough and everyone had problems. But being bullied without any sort of recompense was an invasive reminder that not only was the world inherently unpleasant, but rather unremittingly unfair to those outside the approved social strata. The abiding lesson learned was that you, the bullied, were despised, that forces were actively arrayed against you, and no one was going to step in to help. It rubbed the unfairness of life in one's face. You are not one of those also joined into the collective humanity of life's struggles. You are less than and must be punished for it. So yes, it wasn't just the mere fact of being bullied. Vincent hadn't killed himself while it was happening. It wasn't until a few years later, when it became clear that his victimizers would proceed with their lives unscathed, that the universe seemed oblivious or indifferent to this moral crime that defined Vincent's psyche. Not only had his bullies not been punished, not only had no one seemed to care, but, if anything, they had improved their social status off of him. Supposedly loyal friends of his looked the other way or did what they could to save themselves. Female students who made such an outspoken stink about progressivism and equal rights turned out, like everyone else, to be attracted to the strong and repulsed by the weak. What he'd thought was the rule of law would have amounted to snitching, which was perceived as somehow wretchedly and dishonorably emasculating somehow worse than the apparently understood paradigm of the violent pecking order. And the one time Vincent defended himself, with a frantic stab in the eye area intended only to dislodge the hand wrapped around his neck, he'd been the only one suspended for three months. His nerdiness had been part of the pretext for his bullying, and ironically, after being suspended, his modest academic success was all for naught as whenever a college admissions officer saw that suspension for the violent act of self-defense, 
His hope of some kind of academic vindication went up in flames. In that same short amount of time, it took his hand to lunge with that pen. Joel listened with a combination of empathy and that excitement that comes when one has a private insight confirmed by another. At the conclusion of Vincent's story, which was partly expressed, partly intuited, Joel said, You know, Winston Churchill was, by his own admission, a big bully growing up. He bullied someone so bad the kid stabbed him in the chest with a penknife. It was something of an irreverent line, and Joel wasn't sure why he said it. Maybe it was baiting, but baiting in the way one might wiggle a piece of bacon toward a dog to get it to run out of the street. Well, the kids who bullied me are no Winston Churchills, trust me. They got to go on to college or have their normal lives? Yeah, it's a nice fantasy that every bully is someone who was, like, abused as a kid and that's why they act out, or just someone distracting themselves from their own inevitably dead-end life. But it wasn't like that here. They're still breezing their way through life. They did what they enjoyed and got away with it. Joel knew there was a pivotal fact missing in the tale. And before you killed yourself, you were planning on doing something about it, weren't you? Vincent's natural sheepishness returned. Joel could imagine Vincent coping with some pet or some other totemic consolatory figure or private obsession that Vincent would pour himself into to avoid reality. His guilt about those hateful thoughts of vengeance never abolished, only redirected. Someone so used to scurrying into some interior place to narrate some significance upon his dilemma wasn't someone so willing to express something so seething as a plan for revenge. Yes, I had a plan. Wrote a list. On paper, which is so stupid. But it felt more dramatic and important. Like a bigger step. More real. I tore it up, though. I wasn't going to do that hurt anybody, really. I'd probably just end up hurting some innocent person, and even if I didn't, I don't know. What was I going to do, really? So, yeah. You must have come pretty close, I bet. I mean, I don't know. It was true. Even through all the fixation, he just didn't really know if he was capable of it. He never wanted to hurt anyone. He only wanted to be left alone, to just be allowed to be. He hadn't believed, as naive as it might sound, that the world could be such an unforgiving place until that reality had been thrust upon him. What was your weapon going to be? I'm sure you thought about it. Vincent didn't respond, and rather than let the question linger, Joel continued. Well, my man, it doesn't matter. You don't need to answer. And here's why. And here's the good news. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. That's why we're all here. There are more of us. You'll meet them, don't worry. Turns out, sometimes things do work out. Because here's the best I can figure. The people who have been saved, so to speak, are the people who acted. It's that boldness that saved us. So, say whatever you want, but I'm pretty sure you must have come pretty close to doing what you planned to do, even if you eventually didn't do it. That's an interesting wrinkle in all this. I guess you came close enough. It wasn't prayer or mindfulness or suffering or good deeds that saved you, that saved us. 
and it certainly wasn't turning the other cheek or whatever it is we thought or expected might save us, assuming we expected an afterlife at all. Whatever is behind all this rewarded us for being proactive and taking the steps to right what was wrong. It was standing the fuck up for ourselves. Maybe that's an important skill that's in short supply. And here's the thing. We get to go back. Vincent wasn't sure how he felt. It should have been elation, he knew, and there was definitely something like excitement tethered to trepidation. Don't worry, it's not immediate. It'll take some time, get you acquainted with things around here. But we aren't just going back to, you know, resume our normal podunk lives. We get to go back, and I can't believe I get to finally say something like this with a straight face. Pardon the expression, given we're now currently faceless and all, but we get to go back for revenge. Can you believe it? We're being rewarded finally, after all our suffering. We took the right steps, and this is our reward. Who knew? Who knew? Wouldn't life have been different for everyone if people knew that that was the secret to getting an afterlife? Being proactive, standing up for yourself? To Vincent, this whole conversation felt like being shot out of a cannon. If this was some inauguration process, it would benefit from being more gradual. But then again, Joel didn't seem like the sort who would stick to an ambassador-approved script. Do you really think that's it? Vincent asked. Maybe there's something more to it. Maybe we're being afforded this chance, if what you say is true, because of some fundamental, unrecognized goodness about us. Maybe that's it. That expression, the meek shall inherit the earth. Maybe that's it? Trust me, there are a hell of a lot of meeker people who died and disappeared. Sayonara, that's all she wrote. No, man, it's the opposite. The proactive inherit the earth. Or at least go back there. I get it, though. It's hard to get over those thoughts. You'll see. You'll meet the others and see how the system works. But that's still some fundamental search for fairness talking. That's earth talk, as we say. That's the stuff you've been indoctrinated into. What did everyone say when we were alive? Life's not fair? Well, maybe this system isn't fair. Maybe some old guy who dedicated his life to his family and feeding the homeless and taking in stray dogs or something, who led his uneventful but well-meaning life who dies of heart failure or any other everyday reason should be the one who gets to go back. But that ain't the way it is, I'm afraid. But now, that unfairness works for us. Saying it's unfair would be just as pointless as complaining about gravity being unfair. It is what it is. And isn't it nice to hear someone saying, it is what it is, and that's not a brush-off? Not just some way of telling you to stay in your place. Not some friend explaining to you why things aren't going to get better, but as a rationalization of a system that finally benefits people like us? That's the trick, isn't it? We refused to take it all laying down. We stood up, lost our lives for it. But not for long, my friend. Not for long. Joel had been proven right, or at least everything Vincent was exposed to seemed to confirm Joel's theory. Everyone else he met had a roughly analogous story. Everyone had made some proactive attempt to strike back at an abuser and either died in the process or died before it had begun. In time, through training, dedication, and what passed for mentorship, 
one could cohere, leave this plane of existence. Those who left sometimes came back, emboldened and eager to talk about what they'd done with their chance back on Earth. At peace, their thirst for revenge slaked, they said their goodbyes and allowed themselves to disintegrate. Where they went, one couldn't yet say. Maybe, they all speculated, they went to some other greater plane of being, perhaps met the architects of this novel version of the afterlife. There was a comforting irony in being dead yet still entertaining theories about life after death. Although some who cohered chose to come back and stick around, so powerful was the act of giving succor and marinating in the anticipated thrill of another's planned revenge. It's my time, Joel told Vincent after some unknown, unquantifiable amount of time had passed, time now a concept that had no meaning. The way Joel made this announcement carried some implicit satisfaction in being in on some secret. Funny, Vincent really had no inkling of how much time passed down here. They still used that expression down here, although for all they knew, they could be up there or in between or some other unfathomable permutation. I'm proud of you, Vincent said. They hadn't spent as much time together as Vincent had expected. Vincent had hoped to learn more about Joel, and now was a bit saddened he may never have that chance. Come to think of it, Vincent couldn't be sure how he'd spent his time. All he knew is that he'd hardly ever felt bored anymore, a peace of mind he'd rarely experienced while alive. Why, thank you, man. I'm proud of you, too. Vincent could tell somehow that Joel was attempting some equivalent of a smile. You've really matured in the hour or so you've been here. I've seen some real, unbelievable growth. You've become a true sage. On Earth, they'd have made you a bodhisattva. Vincent laughed in amused shock and, while genuinely disbelieving, made a show of it for Joel's benefit. What, man? An hour? That's right. You died maybe a day ago. You made the transformation and have been down here for about, I don't know, I'd guess an hour of Earth time? What? How else could we get our revenge if we were down here for some equivalent of a hundred years or something? Think whoever designed the system would allow our tormentors to just die of old age? Think we go back on Earth just to, what, badmouth their memories at the local town hall to their distant relatives? Write pissy comments on their obituaries in some version of social media? Nah, man. They are alive and kicking. And here's the kicker. I'm going back and you're coming with me. Are you serious? Yes, sirree. Call me Willy Wonka. I got your golden ticket. Promise not to turn me into a blueberry? Well, you're already dead, so why bother? I only have one person on my shit list, whereas you have a bunch. Uh, a few people, I mean. So let's get mine out of the way and then strategize on yours. We can have fun with it. Master and pupil, the dream team. Vincent appreciated that Joel reduced a bunch to a few people. Being reminded that a bunch of people bullied him still burned him with shame. The quantity of his tormentors alone raised a suspicion to some hypothetical third party that his abuse was deserved. How could all those people be wrong? Vincent had somehow been under the misperception that cruelty could be reasoned with or somehow weighted out, had not understood that for some... Cruelty was its own pleasure, 
and weakness always invited domination. Vincent wouldn't abide by that anymore. A clear summer, early evening. It was, as Joel suggested, like Vincent had never left. The light was still clear, but would soon fade, the fireflies coming out in a few hours' time. He didn't know whether he felt the warming, waning rays or only imagined he did. Whatever it was, it instilled a soft, gliding feeling, those summer nights where the nostalgia and romance seem almost pre-planted, and he expected the crack of a bat hitting a home run in a nearby park or the jingle of the ice cream man, even though he rarely hung out outside while alive. If this were a weekend and they were near a downtown, the bars and restaurants would be filling up with outgoing, normal people with friends and family. People unlike him. They were on an ordinary block with large, detached homes. This could be a block in his hometown, the block where he lived with his mother and father, the block where one night he decided to unceremoniously and modestly end his life with booze and pills and sleep disappearing somewhere like a little shrew into some unseen hole, granting his final wish to be overlooked and unseen. And to think, he'd always thought of himself as so craven, even though he'd made other plans, plans that surprised, confused, and then intimidated him by their extravagant elaborateness and didactic subtext, by the obsessive rigidity and imposed importance of the order by which he planned to do what to whom but he never went through with it. Partly because his intended victims were all dispersed around the state and even across the country now that they were in college, and partly because, let's be honest, who is he kidding? Looking around, Vincent saw some differences between his hometown and wherever they were now. The houses here were closer together and less well-maintained. There was more foot traffic and cars, and the roads were narrower, he now noticed a few houses with light blue and white flags. So, where are we exactly? Vincent asked. Should be Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and one Alyssa Whedon should be living right there. Joel pointed dramatically to a white-paneled, modest, two-story house up the block. And that brand new Honda CRV, which you think would be outside the price range of a supposedly struggling graduate student unless one has a generous mommy and daddy who bankrolled her, well, that car should be all hers. I bet it's even in her name, too. Don't worry, I don't plan on us taking long here. Okay, okay. I grew up in Pennsylvania and always had UNC on my list, if you remember. Before that all went to shit. I remember. Can people see us, by the way? Like, anyone looking out the windows? Vincent turned back to the corner, seeing the occasional car zip by. Or anyone else? Not yet. And even if they did, what would it matter? But once we get up to her place, we'll make ourselves visible. You'll know when it happens. You can follow my lead. I figure now, let's just enjoy the little walk up there. Like two kids out on summer vacation. A summer stroll, right? Makes me nostalgic for childhood, even though I always wanted to be an adult. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. You never actually told me what she did to you, by the way. Joel shook his head and made a show of stretching dismissively and sighing, as if suggesting, 
Don't even get me started. You don't even want to know. Trust me. It pisses me off just thinking about it. Trust me, it's too aggravating to even go into. Eh, fine. What mattered was the camaraderie, and now wasn't the time to spoil the momentum. Vincent hadn't shared his refined grievances against Paul O'Connor, Gio Terilli, Matt Mayhew, and Matt Manello, known as the Two Mats or the M&Ms, some kind of sacrilege that the two most malicious bullies were afforded the bonhomie inherent in a joint nickname, or how he'd fantasized about the order and execution of making things right with each and every one of them. But actually, Vincent wasn't convinced. He didn't want to be kept in the dark anymore, and the only reason he hadn't divulged all his own gory details was because Joel had never really asked. Even at the indulgent pace they were heading up the block, they'd be right at her doorstep in just a few minutes. Well, I want to know before we go in there. I'm an open book and... Vincent changed tact. It'll help me enjoy this better if I know exactly what went down with her. Trust me, I'm trying to just do you a favor. It's so annoying. And out of some desultory instinct, Joel slapped at some unseen bug in the air even though they hadn't yet taken physical form. Joel continued slapping with his fingers, not talking, looking back at Vincent as if not knowing why he was still attentive and waiting, as if Vincent was the one committing the faux pas and not recognizing that bug hunting had taken precedence and the natural window of explanation had passed. All right, if you really want to know, you wouldn't believe how much I helped this bitch with her coursework. I was always... Like, no matter what I was doing or where I was at the time or anything, I was always there to support her, help her through whatever million different problems she was having, and of course, whenever I needed something from her, she'd always blow me off. Like, I was an as-needed friend. Meanwhile, she'd date or sleep around with every scumbag you could think of. Meanwhile, never even acknowledging me or just pretending she didn't notice me so she could go on taking advantage of me without addressing the fact that I was obviously interested. And I mean, that's fine, whatever, but just the level of manipulation and deceit from her, it was incredible. She'd lie about getting back together with an ex or something when she needed me, needed me to talk her through things, always, Oh, I couldn't get the work done, please... And meanwhile, she's out getting railed by her ex-boyfriend, and I'm being the biggest fucking patsy simp ever. So, a couple of other things happened. I wouldn't say anything snapped, but I felt like I didn't have anything to look forward to, and may as well just take her out with me. I've been a pretty depressed person all my life, <laughs> surprise, surprise, and I just had enough. And I kept coming back to how much I felt scorned by her. So naturally, of course I'm doing something about it. Got her in my sights, chasing her down Jason style. And of course, I get hit by a fucking car. Vincent waited. Joel turned toward the house. Vincent recoiled as if someone had just pegged him, unseen, with a water balloon. What? Was there more? Was that it? Was that... Uh, is there anything else? Like, you said a couple other things happened. What was that? Vincent hoped for the worst, 
something like Joel just casually filling in the details that one night, in an inexplicable turn of events, Alyssa tied him up, sodomized him, and shared the video with friends, something to possibly justify Joel's rancor. When Vincent got his revenge, he imagined himself almost bowled over, weighed down with trembling emotion and terrible relief. He wasn't sure what Joel was feeling now, but it wasn't that. Instead, there was a curiously unencumbered glee. Ah, not worth talking about. I was such a fucking idiot to elevate and overvalue this girl. Partly my fault, but mainly hers. Lessons need to be learned. Anyway, here we are. Ready? I'm going to blur myself just a bit so she doesn't recognize me at first. Otherwise, she'd be smart enough to not even open the door. I trust she'd be smart enough to do that, at least. When she comes to the door, just imagine yourself how you looked. It'll come, don't worry. I heard it's easy peasy. And what's the worst that can happen? We die again? Ha! <laughs> Have fun with it. Easy peasy. Vincent felt the vacant hollowness that he knew was his condition's equivalent for a stomach roiling with shame and anxiety. If life was unfair and unbalanced, the rules at best arbitrary and capricious, and at worst commandeered to be self-serving to those who wielded the power, why do he expect the afterlife to be any different? Again, always compromised, everything always compromised, nothing just simple and pure and unfettered. But just think about O'Connor, Terilli, the two mats. You know in your heart your mission is pure. This is just a stepping stone. You know what you need to do. But those appeals weren't working. Hey, one second! Alyssa opened the door, looked back to make sure Stubby, her roommate's cat, wasn't coming close to the front. Stubby was an indoor cat. Alyssa was expecting a package and knew she'd need to sign for it. Oh! Alyssa jolted, confused as to what she'd sworn was an older man in a FedEx uniform, now seeing two men around her age outside her door, the light falling on them weirdly. She flicked the switch for the front door lights, but they were already on. She tilted her head to look up to see if they were working. They were. Uh, sorry, she said, and the man in the lead, his face... It looked like a deflating marshmallow. Alyssa blinked hard. Her vision was shitty because her contacts were terribly dry and allergies weren't helping, and she couldn't accept entirely what she'd just seen. Must be a trick of the light or her contacts. There should be some kind of warning from Amazon to prepare her, like a notice reading, Please be aware that our delivery driver might have a condition that gives him marshmallow face or the appearance of a living jawbreaker. Neither of these men were holding any packages. The man further back was, she now realized with unmooring discomfort, was literally indistinct, a darkened outline of a person with a gummy, floaty center. The man closer to her, she could swear, she could swear he'd been an older man in a purple and brown uniform a second ago. Where had that thought come from? And before she could catch her breath... The face before her. Oh, God. Impossible. No. She recognized him. No. Joel? Weber? 
She recognized that placid moon face, but now his face was impossibly wide, and, as the blurred features now set, jubilant and victorious enough that words weren't needed to get the point across. Not possible. Not possible. Joel became serious and locked eyes with her, made sure she was positive as to what she was witnessing. Joel looked back at the gloaming, sheepish shape behind him, and then back toward Alyssa. He screamed soundlessly, teeth pronounced like cliffsides and then rapidly multiplying, his face widening, mouth following suit, until his screaming, voracious face became her entire world. You've been listening to More as a Knower than a Sufferer by J.R. Hamantaschen. J.R. Hamantaschen is a writer of short stories, having released several collections, including A Deep Horror That Was Very Nearly Awe, with a voice that is often still confused but is becoming ever louder and clearer, and You Shall Never Know Security. JR also co-hosts a horror podcast called The Horror of Nachos and Hamantaschen. You can find collections of his work at Velux Books, www.veloxbooks.com. And with that, listeners, we close out tonight's episode. I'd like to thank J.R. Hamantaschen for his oh-so-seasonally-appropriate stories, as well as Velux Books for allowing us to feature them on tonight's episode. And, as always, thanks to you as well, dear listeners. Whether or not you celebrate Christmas or anything else this time of year, all of us at Horror Hill wish you and yours a happy holiday season. After all, Who knows what terrors await you around the very next corner? Actually, I have an answer to that. I'm the one that knows the approaching terrors. In fact, you can tune in next week at the same day and time for a fresh dose of holiday horror. Until then, listeners, stay spooky. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Tonight's episode was hosted and narrated by yours truly, Eric Peabody. Original music provided by Eric Peabody and Nikki McSorley. Finalization by Eric Peabody and Craig Groshek. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? Email it to us at natalie at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your work considered for future production. Seeing as how we're all living in a technological nightmare of our own devising, I'll ask you to follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on social media and upvote, subscribe, and hit the bell notification icon if you're listening to this on YouTube. Not only will you have appeased the dark gods of cyberspace, but you'll be kept in the loop as we prepare more terrifying content. If you'd like access to uninterrupted horror, free of ads and these annoying bookend segments, might I recommend becoming a patron? You'll get access to hundreds of episodes of this show, as well as everything from the other programs in the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights cabal. 
That means all of Otis Jiry's scary stories told in the dark, Drew Blood's dark tales, Paul J. McSorley's fear from the heartland, and more. It's a veritable smorgasbord of horrific delights. As for me personally, I'm on most social media as Viking Guitar or Viking Guitar Productions. I'm always on the lookout for new stories to narrate and new music projects to mix or master. If that's of interest to you, feel free to reach out and we can talk turkey. Also, I will be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.